Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner, the host of your programme today, and we're going to be joined a little bit later on in the show by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to be joined on the show by Charlie Liverton, the chief executive of the Racehorse Owners Association in London, an organisation which works to promote the interest of racehorse owners across Great Britain. Charlie, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Pleasure. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Charlie. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. But before we dive into that, um, considering that today's generation of leaders is probably going through one of the greatest tests of our time. It would be remiss of me not to ask just how it's been navigating the last few weeks and months in light of the COVID-19 situation. So I think you're right. I think it's been um, a very different landscape to what anybody could possibly have envisaged. Um, I think the vast majority of, of industries had their income streams cut off pretty much um, overnight, and that naturally brings a host of, of, of problems, um, not least for those who didn't don't have the, the balance sheet for a rainy day. Um, I think the government came out with some, some very good initiatives, which we as an industry were, were able to, um, to look at and take part of. Um, I think from a from a racing industry, it's it's very much brought all the stakeholders together. Um, we we seem to thrive in an hour of need much better than we do in in, in calmer waters, and and certainly we brought together pretty quickly a a working group to try and understand just where the most important and pertinent issues were going to be, and 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 for us, that's absolutely horse welfare. And given that, yes, the pandemic pandemic is a global health crisis, um, it's also a global financial crisis. And where you've got horses um, as the main form of entertainment, they need feeding and looking after. um, And it's all in the rural economy, of course. So there's thousands and thousands of jobs um, at stake as well. Our other issue was we couldn't utilize the furloughing scheme the government had um, laid out because you can't you can't leave horses in stables to feed themselves they, they need you need people looking after them so certainly we had a number of of, of, of difficult conversations um, as from my own perspective at the racehorse owners association we're very, very lucky. We're a membership organisation. We've got a lot of very loyal members, albeit we are expecting to see our income hit by about 30 to 40% So natural, over the course of the next 12 months. So we naturally had to make some, some pretty early decisions recognising that. Um, and I think, I think we've all had to reshape our position on what, what being a leader actually is. Um, and I think, I think that's still... Those discussions are still being had across many industries. And what would you say from your point of view, Charlie, is the role of a leader? What does that word actually mean to you? 
So for me, it's about getting the best out of your staff, giving them the opportunity and the infrastructure to allow them to understand what their role is, what their remit is, uh, and what they what they're there um, to achieve from a from a holistic company perspective. Um, we've certainly over the last eighteen months undergone quite a big change management program. Um, whether that's from a, an organizational chart, IT, um, uh, new IT infrastructure, um, and a much more outward-facing approach than, than we had historically. And I think there are various stages of doing that. Um, and, the, and the role of the leader is to, is, is to give comfort and clarity that not only is the direction of sorry, the change in direction of the company in the best interest of the company. But actually, it can't happen without getting the best out of the people. And and as a leader, I'm very aware that, that ensuring that they understand what their roles and responsibilities are and that they're operating in a forward-looking organizational structure mm. um, is, is really key to getting the best out of people and giving them the comfort that they are integral to the journey. I suppose as a leader, if you are the one at the top of the tree who is having to provide that direction, that reassurance and that inspiration, it can almost be quite a lonely place, can't it? Because you have to be very, very selfless in those actions. Whereas when somebody underneath you, um, if you will, an employee, for example, has somebody above them in the hierarchical ladder of business to look up to. There isn't really anybody for a leader to look up to other than really themselves and look within. So when you do need that sort of little bit of inspiration and direction for yourself, Charlie, where is it that you tend to look to for that as and when you need it? I think that word lonely is really pertinent. I've never felt so lonely than I have in the last three months. And I've managed to be quite open in conversations with fellow executives and I've been very lucky to every month be on a on a working call really of, of sport chief executives that work within the sports industry. Mm. And it started off quite generic and it's now become a bit more bespoke, if you like, in inverted commas, in the sense that we we spend one hour of each Friday once a month um, talking about specific agenda items. Um, and I've managed to get quite a lot of comfort from 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 that. But not I think for me it's listening to chief executives in others or senior executives even in in other sports, hearing about their very, very similar problems that they're under that they're facing as well i mean irrespective of what sport you operate we're all behind closed doors and and the truth is is that ticket sales and corporate hospitality and sponsorship are all aligned with attendances on the day Mm. and 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 it's really really tough financially at the moment without the ability to allow spectators at sporting events, so that was one. Certainly, that's been the, the, the main, the, the main area of comfort that, that I've had. But also, I think I'm quite lucky in the horse racing industry. We're a relatively small industry, um, 
we're all very, very passionate about the thoroughbred, the breed of the thoroughbred, and doing the best for the thoroughbred, be that pre-racing or post-racing in the aftercare space, welfare space. And and I think some relationships have been strengthened um, as a result of, of picking up the phone and having the conversation that you may not, we may not have done pre-COVID when we probably should have done. And with that in mind, do you think that there are some positives to take from this quite difficult and quite sensitive time? Because what we are trying to do on the programme this week is try to find some silver lining in what has been sort of a dark and dense cloud over all of us. I think there's some real positives. Uh, the one, the one area that I'm that I'm finding more and more and more across the space that we need to, as chief executives, focus on, which historically we may not have done, is corporate governance and the structure within which we operate. Um, I think that when when things are going well. You, you don't pay much attention, but actually when when you have the impact of, of, of COVID and you need the agility or the ability to do things differently and you find you don't operate in, the, in a structure that gives you that agility, I think it's very difficult. It's, well, it is very difficult to, to make the, the, the material changes that are required somehow. So for me, absolutely a corporate governance review is, is, is very much number one on my list for the second half of, of this year um, to make sure that, 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 that we are um, fit for purpose in that space. And secondly, I think communication. Um, never before has communication from an internal perspective, whether that's within the ROA, um, within the wider membership base, or within the wider industry, um, or external, to government, MPs, sponsors, um, and the like, um, is, is, uh, some, some really positive developments have, have taken place there using technology that we, we, we possibly hadn't advocated in the way that we should have done previously. Um, so, so for me, those, those, those are two areas that some real positives or have been highlighted for which we can take out as real positives going forward. Mm. It certainly has accelerated things in uh, some senses, hasn't it? And we know that over the course of the uh, the next 12 to 18 months, we are going to have to continue to innovate and get used to a new way of living, a new way of working, build the new normal, of course. And if we just think a little bit about that new normal, just before we do wrap things up on today's programme, Charlie, I'm interested to understand what you think is next on the horizon for you and for the Racehorse Owners Association and what you hope to achieve over the course of the next 12 to 18 months certainly so as an industry we are a we're a stakeholder in the governing body the british horse racing authority covid has certainly um brought a made it clear to us all that we need to undergo some pretty some pretty fundamental structural change um to make sure that we as a sport are able to um, maintain our place in the sport, in the in both domestic sporting landscape, but but also the, the global sporting landscape. I think from you know we we survive through the use of animals in sport and entertainment, and I think that's quite a big agenda item for those 
those people who wouldn't who wouldn't agree with that. So we've got a lot to do um, in that area, um, educating people as to as to the benefits of having a horse in training and breeding thoroughbred racehorses. Um, it, it, it's as much about the rural jobs um, and the rural economy and and the tens and tens of thousands. Um, of people that we employ directly and indirectly, as it is the 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 four billion that that, that that goes back to the exchequer, and the three billion plus that goes back from the bookmakers to the exchequer is a direct result of of of, of people enjoying a a flutter on the horses. Um, so for for the ROA, those are two of the main areas of focus going going forward. As well as, I should add, the day-to-day job, if you like, of making sure that the RRA represents owners um, and their and their interests to improve the experience both on the race course and off the experience. We we are an experience-led industry. Um, we fight for for people's um, spend, leisure spend, leisure pound, just as every other. Um, sport does and we need to make sure that we're ahead of the game um, so that's absolutely critical and we'll continue working with our stakeholder partners in the industry to make sure that we can first and foremost retain the leisure pound within the industry because I think that across the board that's that's the main um, the main role of, of anybody at the moment is maintaining and retaining mm-hmm. investment and then and then work on a on a plan as to how we can grow um, over the next three to five years. And let's certainly hope that that growth will be on the horizon. Um, Charlie, I have to say, um, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the programme today to provide not just your views on leadership, but also your interesting insight as to what has been going on within the race, uh, racing horsing industry during the uh, the course of the COVID-19 situation. And, you know, just given how informative that has been, I think it would be wonderful at some point over the course of the next 12 months to have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on at that point in time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful, Charlie. And most importantly, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because as we know, there are still a great many variables in this. And we're not quite sure which way the pandemic is going to go. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it'll all be positive trajectory from here. Absolutely. I was speaking today to Charlie Liverton, Chief Executive of the Racehorse Owners Association. And for those tuning in today and listening, please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on today's programme, I'm going to be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his playing days, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood 
for services to support just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive Mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy 
everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of 
a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your job. Absolutely. Um, And with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be, it doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um 
you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. 
and I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Well, a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.